This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, kind of turning the tables on the interviewer. We're going to talk about history in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, especially the history involving the big general electric plant that used to be there. And this is happening because a Boston radio station, WBUR-FM, which I must say I worked at when I was a college student. But anyway, WBUR-FM has been doing some stories on Pittsfield and GE, and their associate producer, Jamie Bologna, is with us uh, on The Historians, and he wants to ask me about what was going on in uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts back in the day. How you doing, Jamie? Doing well, Bob. How are you? Okay. Well, what would you like to ask me? Well, Bob, you were there reporting in Pittsfield during this very important transitional time between GE being there for generations to GE leaving. And so I was curious if you could just start by telling me about what it was like to be a newsman, a reporter in Pittsfield while GE was there. Okay. I came to uh, Pittsfield, a radio station called WBEC, in late 1968, and I left there in May of 1980 to uh, come over to the Capital District of New York State, which really isn't too far from Pittsfield. So uh, I, I had to look up some of these things, Jamie, but that was that decade of the 70s, which is mainly when I was in uh, Pittsfield, was the time that GE started to contract. Uh, as you as you probably know, uh, General Electric had been the dominant employer in GE for many decades, uh, starting, uh, say, in the 1940s. I think they employed 12,000 people. Their various operations uh, were transformers. They made the big power transformers in Pittsfield, also the smaller distribution transformers. They had an ordnance plant, you know, a federal uh, defense plant, where they turned out the fire control systems for all the various nuclear submarines uh, that had nuclear weapons. And so that was done in Pittsfield. And also they had the headquarters uh, of General Electric Plastics. So it really was a big employer, uh, in fact, the big employer in Pittsfield. Pittsfield, when I went there, was probably a city in the 55 to 60,000 range in terms of employment. And General Electric was really the main thing. Uh, in fact, my uh, wife, who was alive at the time, uh, had told me once that she was at a uh, social gathering, or, or she said it happened at multiple social gatherings, and that uh, other women would come up to her and say, well, what does your husband do at GE? And she said, well, he doesn't work at GE. And she said they had a look in their face like, you poor dear. You know, you've, you, you've people might even be on relief or something like that. I mean, uh, it, it was the major employer in Pittsfield. And honestly, those years that I was there, uh, you know, I was in general aware that they were laying off people, but it still was, was quite big when we left in uh, 1980. And honestly, I was surprised in the ensuing decades to find that GE pulled out uh, pretty much uh, lock, stock, and barrel uh, from, um, you know, from Pittsfield. So, Bob, I'm curious about the type of stories that you reported on during that, as you call it, sort of slow wind down that then surprised you. Because one of the pieces that we're focusing on is the environmental aspect, and uh, particularly the, the PCBs that GE was uh, was basically dumping into the Housatonic. Um, 
and so our focus now is on the the continued effort to have GE clean clean that up. And and so I'm curious about some of the stories that that were maybe starting to percolate, uh, you know, through your reporting uh, while you were in Pittsfield. It honestly was probably kind of low on my radar. I have another kind of GE-related thing that uh, I, you know, is more front of mind to me, and we'll get to that in a moment. But certainly, uh, as the '70s wore on, uh, with the increasing interest in the environment, the first Earth Day, and and so forth, but it, you know, GE became a, a target of uh, protest um, to some extent. Although, again. I, I can't specifically recall a protest at, at GE over this, but I'm sure there there were some. But it's certainly uh, a topic of discussion because it was it was obvious. Uh, in fact, I think that maybe the most obvious sign of that in Pittsfield uh, was the infamous Silver Lake, which um, was used to be written up in Ripley's Believe It or Not as the lake that burned. It was a small body of water uh, near the main General Electric plant where they made transformers, and PCBs in particular, uh, and I'm not an engineer, but my understanding is that in particular, PCBs were used in the manufacture of transformers because uh, despite its cancer-causing properties, which, of course, GE, I'm sure, would say they weren't aware of at the time, uh, it, it was a great insulator. It was a, you know, it was an ideal uh, kind of uh, product to use to make what they were making. So I presume that was dumped into Silver Lake, along with all other kinds of industrial waste. I I looked it up on Wikipedia, and I think it was in 1923, I mean, way, way back, that Silver Lake once caught fire. You know, it's a lake, but it it caught fire because it had so many chemicals in it. And the one uh, story that I recall as a news reporter, because we tended to cover, uh, you know, local crime, you know, kind of was a big uh, thing for us to do. And I remember I was working one weekend when the when the police pulled a car out of the Silver Lake that had gone in the lake at some point in the past. They didn't know when. And there was a dead body inside or somebody was had been in the car. And I didn't look at the uh, corpse, but I asked the officers and they said, well, I think this man died, you know, many, many weeks, months ago because the body's very badly deteriorated. But then they determined that the uh, car and the man had gone into the lake only the week before or something like that. And uh, the chemicals had, had acted on his uh, his person in that in that way. Now, Silver Lake now is one of uh, the the big success stories kind of reminds me of the Mohawk River where where I live now uh, in the Mohawk Valley of of St. New York, which was a real polluted pit, let's say maybe even into the 70s, but has been cleaned up. Silver Lake's a lot cleaner, but they still haven't uh, allowed any bathing, you know, so, um, swimming in the lake or certainly eating the fish. But it certainly looks looks a lot better than it did. But uh, GE's chemicals were. Um, disposed of all around, and maybe more significant than Silver Lake, of course, was its entrance into the, uh, the, the entrance of the dangerous chemicals into the Housatonic River. And, and Bob, um, you mentioned just a few moments ago that there was something that was front of mind that you wanted to get to about GE, so I'm, I kind of want to give you the opportunity to do that. Well, I was there and covered the big strike. Um, I came in the end of 68, in late 1969, I think it was in October, uh, the General General Electric unions 
walked out. Um, it, it, there's, you know, it's, it's an interesting story about GE and, you know, maybe ultimately about Pittsfield. The strike lasted 104 days. So that was a very, uh, very long strike. GE, you know, tried to soldier on and, you know, their um, management people uh, came to work. The picket line got more than a little tense sometime. I remember in particular two female um, management workers who uh, demanded that the police uh, give them uh, an, a way into the plant, uh, and but the workers didn't want to, uh, you know, break their line uh, to, to let them in. It was more or less a kind of a show or kind of political theater on, on each side, but um, that when as I, I don't recall any. You know, anyone dying on the picket line or anything like that. But it was, you know, certainly a a tense time. It also was an interesting time in in terms of news coverage because the union that was on strike in Pittsfield, the main one, was IUE, the International Union of Electrical Workers. And this kind of goes back to a a lot of labor history, if you will. The IUE was sort of a latecomer to unions. It was formed as an alternative to the UE, which was the United Electrical Workers, which had organized places like Pittsfield, I believe as early as the 1930s and certainly in the 1940s. And the UE was was pretty left-wing, and it became the target of people who were concerned about communists. The, the, the rap on UE was that it was infiltrated by the Communist Party, which most of the UE members... You know, said was not true. You know, maybe there were some, but you know, it was just that they were a union and a rather successful union. So IUE at first was seen as the uh, an alternative to UE and started attracting more members. But by the time we come to the strike in '69, uh, uh, I'm not sure if the UE was even still a player, but they were united with the IUE uh, in this strike against. Uh, General Electric. And it just so happened that the the local in Pittsfield, it was local 255, was uh, headed by an IUE guy and a UE guy. <laughs> the IUE guy was Alitano, who was the business agent, and the UE guy was John Foley, who was what was called the chief shop steward. And what I liked as a reporter uh, covering the GE strike was that both of those gentlemen were more than accessible to the press. They'd talk with you, they'd be happy to record the interviews, and so forth. And John Foley, either, uh, you know, the former UE guy, was especially eloquent, I thought, about talking about the plant and, you know, you sort of folksy and and homespun. Uh, So you could always get a a comment from them about, you know, the latest development or non-development in uh, the GE strike. The company, on the other hand, was much more controlled, but also very effective. I, uh, you know, kind of gained an appreciation of General Electric's public relations skills. In those days, um, they did not allow the a. They did not allow their uh, spokesmen or women to do recorded interviews, and you know, ex- except under certain, you know specific occasions, I would say. Uh, so typically, you know, something would happen on the picket line. We'd immediately get uh, some, uh, you know, some audio from the union side, Foley or Latano, And then we try to get either, uh, and the two um, men who were the 
chief PR people at GE in Pittsfield at the time were Jack Batty, who was more the, the spokesman, and Tom Litweiler, who was his boss. But you could get Batty to to talk to you. Uh, in fact, I worked in public relations later myself. I, I, I learned another important thing from Jack Batty. You know, I would call up, oh, um, Jack, you know, what's you know, what, what's this going on about the two women they're trying to get in the plant? He said, well, let me get back to you, which is always the first uh, line of defense in public relations. But when he got back to us, and he always did, he always got back to us, he told us what the company story was or the company position, but I could not quote him. I had to quote a GE spokesman. They didn't want to have any kind of uh, personal uh, association with the with, with GE. But again, they were they were very good at it, um, and the union was was very good at it. But like in different ways. And by good at it, I mean uh, dealing with the media. There were some light moments uh, during the strike. I I remember there was a they brought in a folks the union brought in a folk singer who sang about one of the top union leaders who actually was a Schenectady GE guy called John Shambo and he'd sing a song and for whatever reason I sort of remember it put your trust in old John Shambo and the workers would you know be gathered around fr- frankly at some point uh, barrels where they were warming themselves because this strike lasted on through the winter I think and into the uh, into the spring and Eventually, the strike ended, and as I recall, GE actually gave the workers more than originally they had proposed. And this was seen as a the death knell, or at least uh, a nail in the, in the coffin, of a longtime GE bargaining tactic, which was called Bulwareism, named for Lemuel Bulware who was a vice president and, um, you know, company labor relations person. And their style of negotiating at General Electric was the talks would begin, the union would make demands, and maybe the union would lower its demands and GE would just sit there. And they'd talk about the things the union brought up and GE would, you know, otherwise basically just sit there. But ultimately what GE would do in, in Bulware's reasoning was provide, you know, supposedly after listening to the unions, provide a full, fair, and final offer. And they would not budge from that. And that's how that's the strike began, because they wouldn't budge from that. Uh, GE, or the unions wanted, wanted more, and so they walked out for 104 days. And after it was over, GE did give them a little more. So the... It's sort of a playing the long game. <laughs> yes, it was. That's what GE... Uh, saw it as. Um, so to some extent, maybe, the GE strike was a defeat for the company. But on the other hand, the union members had been out of work a long time. Uh, and also, it was after the big strike, of course, and, you know, people who support GE or, you know, don't like unions, you know, you know quick to point out, it was after this happened that GE started pulling jobs out of, um, out of Pittsfield. Of course, it was a you know a national strike. So I mean, they pulled jobs out of Pittsfield and went to went to other locations. So I'm not sure that's the uh, complete uh, complete story. Well, Bob, I have sort of two questions that that launch out of out of that that story. It, it sounds like, in terms of public relations, GE was. Um, I mean, I guess maybe like all big corporations, but but sort of a little evasive and secretive. And I wonder if if that's what you had found 
apart from the strike, uh, you know, trying to get answers to some of your reporting questions from GE. Yes, I think that's true from a reporter's point of view. And, you know, since then in, in my life, I, I've worked in public relations and it is just, you know, more than to some extent, to a large extent, it's a, you know, kind of a, not a game because, you know, the real things at stake. Uh, but um, there's an old saying that, that truth uh, is information that somebody doesn't want revealed. All the rest is free advertising. So, yeah, I think GE did operate that way. They were very skilled at operating that way. But also, they did do a lot of, uh, you know, and this you find in um, some coverage fairly recently of of the, what's happened in Pittsfield. GE did a lot in Pittsfield. You know, number one, it did pay its workers well. And the other, you know, relatively speaking, uh, and also was much involved in community activities. I mean, some go so far as to call that welfare capitalism. But I, I did read an article that was in one of the Springfield papers uh, you know, a year or two ago about, uh, about Pittsfield, where uh, a gentleman who I think is a state senator now, one of the Downing family, uh, said, you know, re- recalled, and I recall as well, that Pittsfield was known for having these big parades and GE always put out a, a big float. You know, they had a um, like a fire-breathing dragon. I remember one Halloween parade and some incredible patriotic thing. I mean, GE in Pittsfield was the first place that organizations, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the you know the anti-poverty agencies, whoever needed money for quote-unquote good works, that they'd be the people you'd approach because they would be the ones that would be likely to support you. And, and Bob, after the strike, was there a sense that, as, as you said, so that was sort of when the layoffs started. So was there a sense among the people of Pittsfield that you know that they were on the the decline, let's say, or or the you know, <laughs> but if, if it were to be graphing Pittsfield's rise, that maybe this was the the moment that things started started to go down. Well, at very at very least, it was it was coincidental with the decline. But uh, and, and yes, some people said that. Other people don't. I mean, you you go to you know maybe some of the uh, union uh, members and their and their offspring to this day, you know, are, are mad at GE. I I think, and I gather this mainly from news coverage that I've read since, that after GE pulled out, or I think it was in the 90s, they finally, I mean, pulled out. And, and um, the the people didn't blame uh, GE so much for that, but they did start perhaps blaming GE for the for the pollution, uh, for the, the problems that they left behind. You know, it was all well and good that this company was here and provided steady employment for many decades. But now look at this big mess. And and you folks have probably looked into this a lot more than I. But uh, at some uh, point, there was this huge government settlement, was there not, uh, to to work on cleaning up uh, the big mess that uh, was, was left in Pittsfield. What would you say, um, looking back, what would you say that GE's legacy was in Pittsfield, if, you, if that's something you could comment on? Well, I, I, you know, again, I don't feel that qualified to comment on it because, you know, it they're gone from uh, Pittsfield, and, and they but they left in a, long after I left Pittsfield. But I, I think, you know, it's a mixed legacy. Again, they uh, provided uh, tremendous jobs, uh, gave uh, people a, 
a way up uh, and to some extent a way out. I mean, people who work for GE would sometimes, uh, you, know, you know, move on to other companies or move on to other places with the with the company. But uh, the you know the legacy or the bad part of the legacy, I suppose, is the uh, is the chemical pollution that they left behind. I was interested, you know, and again, I was just reading about this to f- uh, find out how Mayor Roberto in um, Pittsfield, who uh, became mayor, I think, back in 2001, uh, he pioneered, uh, and I believe WBUR has reported on this, uh, he pioneered uh, Pittsfield recovering through the arts. Uh, I think he said something to, again, I was reading an article in the Springfield Republican. Uh, He said that when he got there, people were sort of down on GE or they were just down on Pittsfield. Uh, saying, well, nothing will ever happen here. But um, Roberto said, well, we can rebuild our downtown, make an arts friendly. The, uh, they reopened the Colonial Theater and, and so on and so forth. And he's done that. Uh, in fact, that by now that's receding into history. And I gather it's caused some controversy in recent years because some of his political opponents have said, well, you can't just kind of paint your way out of uh, repression or a recession or depression. You know, you've got to have uh, more than art uh, and uh, concerts and, uh, and theatrical uh, productions and so forth. But it's interesting that in the Berkshires, uh, when I was there, Pittsfield was always different. Pittsfield was a different part of the Berkshires than Lennox Lee and Stockbridge and Williamstown, where the emphasis was on culture with major institutions like the Boston Symphony in, in Lennox and the theaters in Stockbridge and the college, uh, Williams College in, um, in, in Williamstown. So I think uh, Mayor Roberto and others have kind of put... Uh, Pittsfield back into that mix. And a little aside to where I live now, I mean, I basically live in a suburb of Schenectady, New York now, where um, Schenectady has still has its GE plant. It was the original GE plant, but much fewer employees. I think in the World War II, Schenectady had 40,000. Now they have 4,000. It's still an you know, extensive uh, employment uh, group you know, for what uh, is, is today. But Schenectady, too, is emphasizing its downtown and its theater and its, um, its movies and its restaurants and uh, you know, cultural activities. So that seems to be a, a way out for uh, some of these former industrial communities. I, I wonder, Bob, if you could just uh, share with me some of your memories about what it was like to live in Pittsfield uh, during that time. I just loved it. I mean, it uh, was a very, uh, you know, nice place to live. It, beautiful scenery. The winters are, are tough, uh, but it, it was sort of on a on a scale that was doable. I always think that of Massachusetts, that even the mountains aren't quite as high as they are in, even in New York State. So um, it, it seemed that, you know, whatever problems we had there, they were surmountable. Um, in, in terms of GE, one thing that I'm sure you've heard in in uh, the, the coverage of GE in Pittsfield, one thing that the those company PR guys worked against, but the people uh, indeed f- frequently said, everybody referred to GE as the GE, the GE. It was like you were talking about the government. You know, it was it was seen as something that was uh, immutable or that it, it wouldn't change. But of course, we found out you know that it could change, and in fact, uh, did change. Uh, and, you know, another point that occurs to me about 
uh, GE employees, you know, in the years that, that I was there, you know, and the old timers. I mean, I was essentially an, a newcomer myself, uh, but I remember uh, one of the old crusty politicians in uh, Pittsfield, you know, he was happy to take all of the, you know, the GE money for whatever um, the, the city was doing or, or needed doing, but he was critical of how GE operated at the time in this regard. They tended to move their people around a lot. I remember this um, this politician told me that he thought that, um, you know, he used to accuse them of, these are the people that live in, that sleep in sleeping bags. They just come here one year, two years, three, then they're gone. They're gone to uh, North Carolina. They're going to, you know, back to Schenectady. They're going uh, wherever. So he didn't see them as like longtime uh, residents of Pittsfield. And Bob, I guess, uh, finally, do you have any advice for Boston as GE moves their corporate headquarters here, very different than than their uh, their manufacturing side, but but still uh, a huge part of the company that's that's now coming here to us. Uh, I guess I wonder, you know, with your experience in Pittsfield, uh, if you've just had any words of advice for for us here. Well, trust but verify, as President Reagan uh, once said. I mean, this is a great thing for Boston, I would say, but realize that GE is moving to Boston after having been many years in Fairfield, Connecticut, and they. You know, moved out of there, and before that, they were in New York City, their main headquarters. But it's not just GE. I mean, I think this is so for other uh, companies that you're familiar with uh, out there, like Raytheon or what, what, whatever. I mean, the uh, maybe GE in particular, though, and and others um, are these are international conglomerates. I mean, they're worldwide. I mean, GE just bought a big electrical manufacturer in France. They employ people in France. They employ people in Mexico. I mean, and and that's not going to go away uh, just because, you know, their offices or their main offices are now located in Boston. Well, great, Bob. I guess, uh, is there anything else or anything you think I'm missing or anything you'd like to to share about your your time in Pittsfield? doesn't even need to be GE-related, but just any any memories you think might might be good for for us to have? Well, it was uh, again, it was a, a a great time, and I do remember the GE press parties when I first went there. They only I think they only lasted the one year that I was there because then they had the strike, and then maybe they didn't do it quite in such an elaborate way. But you know, being a a young and or dare I say uh, struggling reporter, maybe in a in a financial way, these were. It was just great to go to such an event. You know, all the shrimp you could eat, you know, open bar. I mean, this was, uh, you know, this was GE showing, uh, you know, kind of its largesse uh, to the members of uh, the media. Great, Bob. Thank you so much for talking with me. I appreciate it. Jamie Bologna, always good to talk with you. Uh, Associate producer of Radio Boston at WBUR uh, FM. The program's heard Monday through Fridays, 3 to 4 p.m., and then uh, at 10 to 11 p.m. every a weekday evening, correct? That's correct. Okay, thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Something uh, completely different. Up at Fort Ticonderoga, they've got a new 1,300-pound hunk of iron on display. It's half of a mortar that split in 1776. It's a featured piece in the fort's new exhibit, The Last Argument of Kings, The Art and Science of 18th Century Artillery. This was a feature about Fort Ticonderoga uh, that was uh, carried by the Associated Press. 
Curators have used a federal grant to conserve some of Fort Ticonderoga's 180-plus cannons, mount a two-year exhibit that tells the story of a collection considered one of the most extensive in North America. Originally cast in France and capable of lobbing 13-inch diameter, 200-pound shells more than three miles, the big gun was used in the French and Indian War to bombard British and American troops besieging the French-held fort, then known as Fort Caroline. During the Revolutionary War, the American troops hauled these mortars from upstate New York to Boston, where they were used in uh, the battle at uh, Bunker Hill, and later to Canada before the guns wound up back at Ticonderoga. It was then the guns split in two lengthwise while being test-fired in 1776. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.